0: listening to Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week we feature intriguing talks and compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. On this episode of Aspen Ideas to Go is author Cheryl Strayed. Strayed has written 3 books including Wild, the number 1 New York Times best-selling memoir about her journey on the Pacific Crest Trail. Wilde was adapted into the 2014 film starring Reese Witherspoon as Strayed and Laura Dern as her mother. Both actresses received Academy Award nominations for their performances. Strayed speaks about her writing career and her life, and what it's like to have your personal experiences turned into a movie. She also reads excerpts from the book. Here's Cheryl Strayed.
1: You know, here, this book has this hiking boot on the cover, and I think it's a fantastic cover, really, really sort of metaphorically fitting, um, because it is that single boot, that orphan boot. and uh, And you know, I was an orphan it 's a story about about me being an orphan too really and But some people uh, bought the book because they thought it was about hiking you know and and then they 'll be like, "Holy smokes you know it 's actually they 're sobbing you know um, by chapter one and and they 're like they, they didn 't know that they were getting into that. Um, And so it is about hiking. I mean, I I walked 1,100 miles on the Pacific Crest Trail by myself in the summer of 95 when I was 26. And it was really hard and really fun and completely uh, soul-shattering and soul-building and spirit-rejuvenating and life-altering. And I do tell that story in Wild. That's absolutely um, told in detail. But I think that the, the, the bigger story... Um, that thing I was talking about just a moment ago, that reason uh, really for the hike and for telling the story um, begins on March 18, 1991, when my mom died suddenly of cancer when she was 45. She'd only known she had cancer for seven weeks. And um, she was really um, my only parent. I had my, my father, my biological father was not. Uh, didn't love my siblings and I the way um, one hopes a father will will love his kids. And when he was in my life, he wasn't in my life most of my childhood, but when he was, he was an abusive, violent, tyrannical force. And so when my mom died, and I had a stepfather who I loved very much, but after my mom died, he he just couldn't continue to be that to me. And when she died, it was just as if um, the world ended the world as I knew it ended, um, the world with my mother in it. And I was a senior in college at the time. Um, my mom was was also a senior in college, as it happens. I had um, grown up uh, poor and working class in, in Minnesota, most of the time in Minnesota. I was born in Pennsylvania, but um, moved to Minnesota when I was about six. And um, when I, you know, I was always this, from a very young age, five or six, as soon as I could read and write, I was just ferociously obsessed with books. An avid reader, an avid writer, I didn't, it, it I'd never, it never occurred to me that someone like me could be a writer. Um, I didn't know any writers, I thought of them as dead people, and, <laughs> and so, but I did know that I wanted to, you know, that, that somehow I wanted to throw myself in that direction. And that, to me, meant getting a college education. Um, nobody talked to me about college, like what you're supposed to do um, to apply for college. And so I started, when I was a senior in high school, I started to get these brochures in the mail. And they, they uh, had, what I did is I lined up these brochures and I looked at the pictures on the cover. And so if any of you work in you know any kind of like marketing or, or sort of public relations this, these these things matter these brochures and i i line them up and i and i honestly chose the school that um had like the nicest looking buildings and the least weird looking people you know and and that happened to be the university of st thomas which is this private catholic college in st paul minnesota it never occurred to me i could apply anywhere out of state and i was also you know the college where i really should have applied to because it was the one i could afford since i was paying my own way was the university of minnesota but it just seemed so big and i was this kid from the country i grew up on 40 acres of land 20 miles from the nearest town and that town had 400 people and um, i didn't have indoor plumbing Um, and for part of my teenage years, I didn't have running water or electricity either. And so uh, it was just so intimidating for me to think of going to the Twin Cities and then to go to a huge university on top of it was impossible. So luckily St. Thomas let me in, the one college I applied to let me in. And when they wrote this letter saying you're in, they said um, one of the benefits if you choose to go here, they didn't know I didn't have a choice, One of the benefits is your parents can go for free, to take classes for free, and your grandparents can take classes for free. And um, my mom read that and said, oh gosh, you know, I've always wanted to go to college. And I immediately laughed because she was 40 and way too old to go to college. And also there was no way in hell she was going to go to college with me. would any of you sign up when you were 17 um, to bring your mom to college with you? Um, but what happened is time a few weeks passed and and i kept having that that feeling inside of me that the true voice kept saying ah, you know my mother has sacrificed everything for me and my siblings and maybe i could say yes and give her this opportunity um, even though the school was three hours away from where we lived and so I, I we agreed that she could go to college with me and I would go and live in the dorm and she would uh, commute um, three hours she would she got her all her classes she, she took a full full load of classes and there was one condition and that was that if we encountered each other on campus um, she could not acknowledge um, that she knew me <laughs> unless I acknowledged her so It was like i was the queen you know it'd be like and she was my subject but um and it was she said and she totally was so great and i i I look back i just i was such a you know such a 17 year old um and she said yeah i'll do that and so we did we went to college that first year together and and i did realize saint thomas was not quite a good fit for me and too expensive so i said to my mom look i have to i want to transfer to the University of Minnesota, and she said, that's fine, I'll transfer too. (laughs) And and luckily, the University of Minnesota has more than one campus. And so she went to the campus in Duluth, about an hour and a half from where I grew up, and I went to the Twin Cities. And, you know, we were kindred spirits, my mom and I. She She was a good mother. And it was when we were seniors that she got sick and died. It was the Monday of our spring break. Friday was her funeral. And then I went back to school. Um, my mom had two classes to take before she died. Um, she um, was granted her degree posthumously. The university waived those classes. I had five more classes to take. And I had promised my mother that I would go back because I, when she got sick, I said, I'm quitting. I'm quitting college, I'm out of here. And she said, please, don't let this stop you. Please get your bachelor's degree. So I went back and I took five classes and I did everything I had to do in those weeks right after my mom died. And it was really hard. Um, and, and I walked across the stage and I collected my paper um, bachelor's degree and inside it said, you don't actually have your bachelor's degree um, because I had, fin- I had failed to do one thing in one class. I had failed to write a five page paper. In one of my English classes about Nikolai Gogol's short story "The Nose," and they said, "Just finish that, and then you have your degree." And it was at that point, you know, I walked across the stage and I got that paper baton. Um, but but if if you if, if I had to like physically enact what I was actually doing at that moment when I walked across the stage. It would just be that I, you know, like I crawled and dragged myself across the stage. I was, at that point, just so um, collapsed in my grief that I just was like, you know, fuck you, I'm never gonna finish that paper. And I think that that was this moment, you know, that I sort of crossed over. And when I first, when my mom first died, I really tried to grieve her in ways Uh, that were noble and that honored her and that in some ways attempted to replace her in our family. And then I found that I couldn't replace her. She was so powerful. I had never known her invisible mother power until she was gone. And um, I didn't have that invisible power. I was the daughter. And so my family disintegrated essentially. And and I, in my grief, um, did too in some ways. I, I really turned my grief inward and uh, became very self-destructive. I was married at the time, I married really young to someone I really loved and who was good to me and um, and I did all sorts of things um, you're not supposed to do when you're married, namely having sex with other people, um, <laughs> which doesn't usually go over so great, um, but with the, the spouse and um, you know I, I think in retrospect it was just like I was you know just hungry for, for everything. Um, one of the things that happened in the course of that as I met this man. I I left um, Minnesota and my husband and I had broken up at this point and I went to Portland, Oregon where I live now and I met this man who was using heroin and he said would you like to try some and it really at the time it seems so silly now I look back when I was writing Wild um, whenever I've written about this experience with heroin I had I just shake my head the older me knows better but the younger me was searching you know and in so many ways the first time I used heroin it really was this feeling of finally something that works finally something that that takes this pain away there was like this cure for the world without my mom because this whole other world I didn't know existed opened up and it was like planet heroin where it was okay that my mom was dead and so you know I didn't go all the way down the the deep Dark rabbit hole of addiction, but I was, I was getting there. And certainly all the people around me who were using heroin were there. And, um, but my, the man I was married to at the time, my ex-husband, um, pulled me out and I had enough sense to, to, be, to be pulled. And returned to Minneapolis. And by then it was about three and a half years after my mother had um, died. And I really was at this place of just the bottom because I recognized how much I had failed um, everything. My, my own, the, the person I was supposed to become, which was, which was actually the person my mother raised me to be. And I think in so many ways by, by failing to do that, I was, in, I was trying to show the world how much I love my mom. I was trying to honor her by refusing to go on. And I was struck really painfully by the recognition that I had done the the absolute wrong thing, I'd actually dishonored her. Um, and I'm a mom now; I have two kids, and I know that that the greatest honor they could give me if I died young would be to thrive, you know, to actually go on. And so it was at this moment um, that I was starting to really recognize this. I was I was at the same time feeling this this deep despair that I was recognizing that I had to change, um, that something that my life couldn't just be this. And there was a blizzard um, in Minnesota, like there tends to be an awful lot. And I had to, I had a 1979 Chevy Love pickup then, it was called Myrtle, this little pickup I drove around, and I went to REI because I had to dig it out. It was mired in snow, and I love that I don't have to tell you guys what REI is, I guess, no. Um, And I went there to buy a foldable shovel, and I was standing in line, waiting to pay for it, and I looked to the side, there was this row of books, and I, just to kill time, picked up one of the books. It had a picture of a snowy, peaked mountain with a lake and boulders in the front of it, and, I, and it was called the Pacific Crest Trail, Volume One, California. I had never heard of the PCT before, and I turned the, the, and read that paragraph on the back of the book that said, the PCT is this national scenic trail that goes from Mexico to Canada, at the, the, the crest of the Sierra Nevada and the Cascade Range. And I'd never heard, I didn't know a National Scenic Trail existed, um, I didn't know, you know, I mean, I, I didn't really know anything about any of this whole business. But the the paragraph, just that one paragraph, I mean, so many books have changed my li- life, um, but that one is really, a, who knew this guidebook would be so such a profound um, change for me. I just, there was something that blossomed in my, my chest. I guess it was like that inner voice that's told me, you should let your mom go to college with you. Um, this voice said, you should do this thing. Just go, just go and just go walk on this trail. And, and I, I really think, in, in retrospect, I think that really harkens back to um, the way I grew up. I knew that the wilderness was home to me. I knew it was the place I felt the most gathered. I knew that, uh, that, uh, that I could find some sense of peace there. And so I was working as a waitress at the time and writing when I, when I could, when I wasn't having sex with everyone and shooting heroin and stuff. Um, and uh, <laughs> that doesn't leave a lot of time for writing, but... but um, and I saved my money. Every week I'd go into REI with a big wad of cash, my tips, you know, and ones and fives and stuff. And, and I would buy, I would say, I'm gonna go for about three months, I'm gonna hike as far as I can in about three months. And, and they would say, well, you know, they'd sell me all this cool stuff, you know, REI is so great at that, and um, and then I'd throw in other, you know, because there's so, the, all the like camper, backpacker stuff is so damn cute, you know, and so you're like, oh yeah, I need that too, and um, throwing it in, and so I did that, and I, and I got divorced, and I sold most of my things, and I and I learned how to. Um, dehydrate food and I packed all these resupply boxes that I would mail to myself along the way and I meticulously planned you know the the course I would walk that summer and I drove to Portland Oregon and um, then got myself to Los Angeles and then to the town of Mojave California which is about 10 miles from the trail and I checked into a motel there and I and I piled I was alone and it was the day I was to begin backpacking and I Piled all that stuff on the bed, the pack, all the stuff I bought. Um, I had never um, packed my pack before. Um, that was uh, not advisable. Um, and I also, when I was looking at that stuff, I realized, in this deep in the bones way, um, that I had never gone backpacking before either. <laughs> and which is a really profound. Realization to have um, the day that you're going to set out on an 1,100 mile journey, and so, and I did this because you know I was an I was an avid day hiker, so I mean it wasn't as if I'd never gone hiking before. It was that I'd never gone backpacking, and and I'd done this thing that I do a lot where I I kind of I conflate an easy thing and and a hard thing, and I sort of make them as if they're the same thing, you know. And so you know with day hiking, like you you wake up, you have brunch, you know, you go. Right, you go for a walk, you come back, you, you have a chardonnay and a cheeseburger, and some nice pub, and um a micro brew you know and um and it 's like backpacking is totally not like that um, there's there 's no brunch on the on the p c t and so I was really recognizing this profoundly, and I packed the pack the other thing I had done is very, very. Without thinking, cavalierly decided where to begin my hike simply based on where I wanted to end. And then I just traced my finger down the map, added up the miles, how long will, how many miles, you know, what's the distance from the end point, and um, landed at the beginning point in the Mojave Desert. And the reason that that was a mistake that I only realized that morning is, um, you know, I'm from Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, and it turns out there's hardly any lakes in the Mojave Desert. And so I had to carry all this water, 24 and a half pounds of water, on the first day. So in addition to all the stuff, which was too much stuff, very typical novice backpacker mistake. So here's what happened when I got the pack all packed and everything that wouldn't fit bungee corded to the outside and, um, and then the water, the big water balloon dromedary bag attached to the pack. Finally when everything I was going to carry was in the place that I needed to carry it a hush came over me. I was ready to begin. I looked at my pack. It was at once enormous and compact, mildly adorable and intimidatingly self-contained. It had an animate quality. In its company, I didn't feel entirely alone. Standing, it came up to my waist. I gripped it and bent to lift it. It wouldn't budge. (laughs) I squatted and grasped its frame more robustly and tried to lift it again. Again, it did not move, not an inch. I tried to lift it with both of my hands, with my legs braced beneath me, while attempting to wrap it in a bear hug, with all of my might and my breath and my will, with everything in me, and still it would not come. It was exactly like attempting to lift a Volkswagen Beetle. It looked so cute, so ready to be lifted, and yet it was impossible to do. I sat down on the floor beside it and pondered my situation. How could I carry a backpack more than a thousand miles over rugged mountains and waterless deserts if I couldn't even budget an inch in an air-conditioned motel room? The notion was preposterous, and yet I had to lift that pack. It hadn't occurred to me that I wouldn't be able to. I'd simply thought that if I added up all the things I needed in order to go backpacking, it would equal a weight that I could carry. The people at REI, it was true, had mentioned weight rather often in their soliloquies, (laughs) but I hadn't paid attention. I thought about what I might take out of my pack, but each item struck me as either so obviously needed or so in case of emergency necessary that I didn't dare remove it. I would have to try to carry that pack as it was. I scooted over the carpet and situated myself on my rump right in front of my pack, wove my arms through the shoulder straps and clipped the sternum strap across my chest. I took a deep breath and began rocking back and forth, back and forth to gain momentum until finally I hurled myself forward with everything in me and got myself onto my hands and knees. My backpack was no longer on the floor. It was officially attached to me. It still seemed like a Volkswagen Beetle, only now it seemed like a Volkswagen Beetle that was parked on my back. (laughs) I stayed there for a few moments trying to get my balance. Slowly, I worked my feet beneath me while simultaneously scaling the metal cooling unit with my hands until I was vertical enough that I could do a deadlift. The frame of the pack squeaked as I rose, it too straining from the tremendous weight. By the time I was standing, which is to say hunching in a remotely upright position, I was holding the vented metal panel that I'd accidentally ripped loose from the cooling unit. (laughs) I couldn't even begin to reattach it. The place it needed to go was only inches out of my reach, but those inches were entirely out of the question. I propped the panel against the wall, buckled my hip belt and staggered and swayed around the room, my center of gravity pulled in any direction I so much as leaned. The weight dug painfully into the tops of my shoulders, so I cinched my hip belt tighter and tighter still, trying to balance the burden, squeezing my middle so tightly that my flesh ballooned out on either side, which we all know is a really fantastic look. (laughs) My pack rose up like a mantle behind me, towering several inches above my head and and gripped me like a vice all the way down to my tailbone. It felt pretty awful. And yet, perhaps, this was how it felt to be a backpacker. I didn't know. I only knew that it was time to go. So I opened the door and stepped into the light. Thank you. So I didn't know. I didn't know, and um, I really did think, well, maybe this is how it's done, and I'm just going to have to get used to it. So I went out there, and um, I, I was immediately schooled. Um, well, you know, let me just quick rele- I'll just read a couple of pages of what happened um, when I got out there, and then, and then I'll tell you a, a little bit more about that. So I had to hitchhike. Um, that was the first time I've ever hitchhiked. Um, on the trail, you have to get to the trail, and I, you know, at the, in this town it was 10 miles from the trail, so I, I approached these men and they looked at me strangely because my pack was so big, and then they dropped me off, and there I was on the side of this lonely highway. I stood by the silent highway after they drove away, small clouds of dust, blue and swirling gusts beneath the glaring noon sun. I was at an elevation of nearly 3,800 feet, surrounded in all directions by beige, barren-looking mountains dotted with clusters of sagebrush, Joshua trees, and waist-high chaparral. I was standing at the western edge of the Mojave Desert and at the southern foot of the Sierra Nevada, the vast mountain range that stretched north for more than 400 miles to Lassen Volcanic National Park, where it connected with the Cascade Range, which extended from Northern California all the way through Oregon and Washington and beyond the Canadian border. Those two mountain ranges would be my world for the next three months. Their crest, my home. On a fence post beyond the ditch, I spied a palm-sized metal blaze that said Pacific Crest Trail. I was here. I could begin at last. The trail headed east, paralleling the highway for a while, dipping down into rocky rocky washes, and back up again. I'm hiking, I thought, and then I'm hiking on the Pacific Crest Trail. It was this very act of hiking that had been at the heart of my belief that such a trip was a reasonable endeavor. What is hiking but walking, after all? I can walk, I'd argued when Paul had expressed his concern about my never actually having gone backpacking. I walked all the time. I walked for hours on end in my work as a waitress. I walked around the cities I lived in and visited. I walked for pleasure and purpose. All of these things were true. But after about 15 minutes of walking on the PCT, it was clear that I had never walked into desert mountains in early June with a pack that weighed significantly more than half of what I did strapped onto my back. Which it turns out is not very much like walking at all which in fact resembles walking, less than it does, hell. (laughs) I panted and sweated, I began panting and sweating immediately, dust caking my boots and calves as the trail turned north and began to climb rather than undulate. Each step was a toil as I ascended higher and higher still, interrupted only by the occasional short descent, which was not so much a break in the hell as it was a new kind of hell, because I had to brace myself against each step Less gravity's pull caused me with my tremendous uncontrollable weight to catapult forward and fall. I felt like the pack was not so much attached to me as me to it. Like I was a building with limbs unmoored from my foundation careening through the wilderness. Have any of you ever carried a pack that gave you that feeling? Within 40 minutes the voice inside of my head was screaming, what have I gotten myself into? I tried to ignore it, to hum as I hiked though humming proved difficult to do, while also panting and moaning in agony, and trying to remain hunched in that remotely upright position, while also propelling myself forward when I was a building with legs. So then I tried to simply concentrate on what I heard, my feet thudding against the dry and rocky trail, the brittle leaves and branches of the low-lying bushes. I passed, clattering in the hot wind, but it could not be done. The clamor of what have I gotten myself into was a mighty shout. It could not be drowned out. The only possible distraction was my vigilant search for rattlesnakes. I expected one around every bend, ready to strike. The landscape was made for them, it seemed, and also for mountain lions and wilderness-savvy serial killers. (laughs) But I wasn't thinking of them. It was a deal I'd made with myself months before, and the only thing that allowed me to hike alone. I knew that if I allowed fear to overtake me, my journey was doomed. Fear, to a great extent, is born of a story we tell ourselves. And so I chose to tell myself a different story from the one women are told. I decided I was safe. I was strong. I was brave. Nothing could vanquish me. Insisting on this story was a form of mind control, but for the most part it worked. Every time I heard a sound of unknown origin or felt something horrible cohering in my imagination, I pushed it away. I simply did not let myself become afraid. Fear begets fear, power begets power. I willed myself to beget power, and it wasn't long before I actually wasn't afraid. I was working too hard to be afraid. I took one step and then another, moving along at barely more than a crawl. I hadn't thought that hiking the PCT would be easy. I'd known it would take some getting adjusted, but now that I was out here, I was less sure that I would adjust. Hiking the PCT was different than I imagined. I was different than I imagined. Thank you. So, The PCT gave me an opportunity to reimagine myself. Um, I had no other choice. I was schooled by the trail. I went out there um, thinking that, really seeking spiritual rejuvenation and emotional healing. And and, and the image I had of that was a very uh, sort of... If there were a soundtrack to it, it would be like that nice music that when you're getting a massage, you know? Um, and I just, I imagine that I would be in nature and I would be watching the sunsets and I would be reflecting deeply and I would be thinking how everything was really actually so beautiful. And um, and what happened is I get out there and really I'm thinking, where the fuck is the water? <laughs> um, and what, you know, it, it's like a lot of curse words and a lot of, um, you know, and and it was, and it was that I was forced out of the, the head and the heart and into the body. And of course, um, when, you're, when you're forced in that way, it was an incredibly physical endeavor. And when you're forced to do that, of course, all that other stuff ends up happening too. You know, um, every day was full of physical uh, challenge, sometimes actual physical suffering. In fact, lots of times physical suffering. Um, when, when I first went out to the trail, um, the first eight days, I didn't see another human being. So I was completely, utterly alone for eight days. No human even sighting. And that was profound. You know, I could have stopped on day nine and it would have been a lot easier. My book could just be called Eight Days. And, um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, I, the pack was so heavy everywhere. It made contact with me it chafed my skin. It wore my flesh away. My feet were completely screwed from the get go. Um, I never did have the right boots and um, I suffered terribly. And you know, and yet there was that sense of every day being this thing that I you know, had, this mission that I was on and this, this, this challenge I had to undertake. And the only way to survive it was one step at a time. And I really uh, think that in so many ways enacting in, that kind of suffering physically was what ultimately helped me um, come to grips with. What I had to emotionally, you know, that world without my mom. Um, the only way to get through any physical trial is uh, by forging ahead and and thinking in a very you know, in incremental way about that next step or that next mile. Or you know, I mean, I've given birth naturally to two kids too, and it was that same thing. It was just like this contraction. This is this is the thing you have to survive. And I think that anyone who loses somebody. Um, essential to them, or has some sort of uh, really life-altering heartbreak. I think that that's the way you survive that too. Is um, you know one of the things that just still makes my head spin. But it really made my head spin then. Is I'm gonna have to live the rest of my life without my mother. She's actually never gonna be given back to me. That was so unbelievable to me, and and unbearable. And so when I realized that it was just, I had to surrender and say, well, it's always going to be sad, but I can accept this. I can, I can thrive in spite of it. That that was a huge shift for me. Um, and when it came to writing the story, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the people, a lot of people say, well, why did you wait so long to write Wild? You took this hike in '95, and I didn't begin writing it until 2008. And the reason, the, the answer is, I didn't wait. Um, I didn't have anything. To say about the story until I until I wrote Wild, I was I was ready to write Wild when I could understand um, what that experience meant to me and how it was made manifest in my life as I as I grew older, um, and it, and it also was through the writing that I discovered that I that I had a that this story was something that um, could could be a book, and that scene I read to you uh, about putting on my pack which is essentially a comic scene. I mean, you guys were, were laughing, and, and it, it makes me laugh too when I think about that experience. But, but really, um, when I wrote that scene, it was, that was the point when I recognized that, that I could tap this, this experience um, and, and makes, make it mean something. Um, because it really is um, essentially the situation that, that, we're, that we all face one day or another. We have to bear a weight that we can't bear. And then there we are, you know, we're alone with that pack and the only choice is to, um, you know, to just give up or to lift the pack and, and walk out the door. And so when I wrote that and I, and I could feel in the words, I could feel in the words that that was what that story was really about. That's where Wild really was, was born. Um, and, you know, that, so the hike did end up being transformational. I had no idea when I was writing it. I mean, no idea, none that anyone would say to me that this book was inspiring, that this book inspired them. My feeling about the book as a writer on, from the inside, I really just, um, you know, I, I wanted to just tell as, I wanted to be as raw and open and vulnerable in telling you the story of this experience as possible and then, and then sort of come what may. I didn't have an expectation. Um, and of, of, of who would be inspired or, or dismayed or whatever emotional reaction they'd have to it. But one of the things that I think is really, um, has been interesting to me is that through the experience of so many people reading the book, in some ways the book has been, you know, become, it's been given back to me. Or I guess I, see, I can see the story through your eyes in a way that I didn't always see it even through my own when I was writing it. Um, and and that that has been a, a really kind of cool experience. Um, one of the questions I get asked a lot is like what what was that aha moment on the trail? what was the you know the big thing the, the big shift and the, the real answer is it was there wasn't not one. you know Those of you who read the book know that there were some there were some days out there that that felt really emotional triumphant or were particularly difficult or wonderful or whatever, but really it was the accumulation of the days. It was the power of the hike was what happened in very subtle and humble ways over time. And keeping faith with um, the power of sort of forward motion every day was what ended up being the thing that felt really significant to me. Um, and, And so I wanted to tell that story, which I think is a truer story of transformation, a subtler story of transformation than that kind of epic, um, you know, Hollywood, you know, she began as like Charles Manson and then she ended it, and she's the Buddha, you know? And um, so, and what I'm so gratified is that so many people have gotten that. So thank you for, for you know, for receiving my book so generously and, and kindly. And happy trails, everyone. Thank you, Cheryl.
0: That was author Cheryl Strade, recorded live at Aspen Words on April 12, 2013. Aspen Words is a nonprofit literary organization and program of the Aspen Institute, hosting the world's most prominent contemporary authors. Its mission is to encourage writers, inspire readers, and connect people through the power of stories. For more information and to learn how you can participate, visit AspenWords.org. I'm Tricia Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.